so that's kind of how I look at the sheet pan dinner. It's like I almost don't even care what's on a sheet pan as long as it's homemade and I only have dishes for five minutes. That's just like exhilarating to me. That'll keep me from that takeout meal or that quickie fix of some cold cuts or whatever else. Welcome to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan. Today, my guest is an iron chef but her path could have been quite different. I grew up a couple blocks from here, from Radio City, and I grew up precisely across the street from the iconic Carnegie Deli. I kind of had a choice, I think, become a chef or become a dancer and then be a Rockette. My dad and I would just go across the street. I mean, I would see lines of people from all over the world waiting to get one of these famous sandwiches. And I always used to get the same thing, um, just half corned beef, half pastrami on rye, with mustard on the bottom and chopped liver on the top. I mean, that's just... You probably know her best as the tough but fair judge on Food Network's Chopped. She's also the host of Supermarket Stakeout. That's her new show on Food Network. And you also see her each Saturday on The Kitchen. She's the author of several cookbooks geared to the home cook. And her latest book, Cook With Me, has just hit the shelves. Y'all, I am just so delighted to have Chef Alex Guarnaschelli on Homemade. Alex, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm tickled that you could find time for us because I know you're busy with this new book coming out. I use your book, The Home Cook, quite a lot. It's The Home Cook, Recipes to Know by Heart. And I have really enjoyed that book. So I was really looking forward to this new one. Alex, I love the way you have this book lined out. I mean, it makes things so easy. You have one pan dinners, slow cooker dinners, and you're helping us not only to cook with better ingredients and save time, but you're also helping us to utilize our instruments and tools that we have in the kitchen to be more effective. Tell me a little bit about the book, how it came to be, and what you wanted to accomplish with it. I sort of put out the home cook and said to my editor, is it possible to do a little more of the same? And I know that everybody likes saying how different everything they do is or how they're evolving in the field. But the truth of the matter is I didn't get everything into my second cookbook and sort of felt like there were a lot of recipes that ended up on the cutting room floor because of length. You know, my second cookbook was about recipes you want to just know by heart. And they're part of your, like your instinct when you're in the kitchen. And then I just thought, you know, the recipes that are left, they're recipes that I really want you to cook with me. Right. Or feel like you're cooking with me. And my editor just kind of said, I think you just named the book. So that was kind of cool the way that fell in my lap. And then I just thought a lot of these are maybe things that a home cook would like to know, but maybe doesn't know in some sense. There are also a lot of recipes that are really like a familiar feeling. There are things that people have definitely made before or know. And I like that kind of mix of familiar and also aspirational. At the same time, I have a slow cooker chapter. I have a lot of desserts that can kind of go anywhere. They could go into a brunch. They could go after a dinner. They could be something new in the holiday repertoire, which I think people are always looking for. You know, I've always been very surprised by the fact that while you're probably best known as a savory chef, savory cook, just like most chefs, you have a giant collection of dessert recipes. Your website's full of them. Your books are full of them. Your Instagram feed, you're always baking. So is that something that's really a part of your heart? Yeah. I mean, it's very therapeutic for me, honestly, because I mean, how much more chicken can you roast? (laughs) So, I mean, at a certain point, yeah, 
baking is definitely my therapy, my Zen place. I don't put as much pressure on myself with the baking in a way, because I don't know, maybe it's more for sport and fun than classic savory cooking is. Yeah, because when you're on the line under the gun in a kitchen, like you've been in some top kitchens along your career, like with Daniel Balud, and you cooked all over France. I can see why perhaps going to something sweet would be a nice chill and relaxing time for you in the kitchen, not feeling so pressured to turn out the perfect plate. It's like if a plumber gets to do a little electrical work. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. I love the chapter in this new book about the new meats. So you've got cauliflower, squash, broccoli, and cabbage in a meat category. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Meat is it's so much a texture and it's so much about how we feel when we do eat it. I think that we feel satiated. We feel like a heaviness when we chew it. We feel something belly warming. You know, on the one hand, you have a lot of meat substitutes on the market that mimic meat, but it's actually the heartier vegetables that feel to me like meat. Like biting into a portobello mushroom and chewing that, feeling that heartiness, That's like something that a meat substitute doesn't give. I think meat, the new meat, runs the gamut from canned jackfruit to a portobello mushroom to a cabbage to a meat substitute. You have a lot of different things that play that part. Anybody who has an elimination diet for any set of reasons shouldn't feel like they're eating meat without having to actually eat it. And maybe it'll get some meat eaters to look at ingredients in a new way. So elimination diet, you mean by like eliminating sugar because maybe they have diabetes or some other health condition or eliminating glutens or any of those other kinds of things? Yeah. Or somebody who's a vegetarian for matters of principle. My two best friends are vegetarians just out of principle, which I respect as well. A lot of people have dietary restrictions for religious reasons. You know, I have a cook in my kitchen who's worked with me for literally 19 years. And his two specialties are pork chops and duck. Right. You never know why or how you fall in love with doing one specific thing, but he doesn't eat pork and he's never eaten a single pork chop. And he's probably cooked more pork than most humans. That always fascinated me. I have another cook who loves to cook shrimp and make lobster bisque and he's allergic. Oh, wow. Yeah. You just don't know people's relationship to food and different ingredients. And just because you can't eat something or you won't, or you shouldn't, or you whatever. I sort of like the idea that the new meat would be inclusive feeling, if that makes sense. Yes, it absolutely does make sense. I love the fact that you've also in this book included one pan dinners. I think that's so on trend. People are looking for something quick, but like you said, maybe not just the same old roast chicken, although quite delicious. Everything everybody's kind of perfected their chicken. Tell me your favorite one pan dinner. If you're going to cook a weeknight dinner, what would you go to? What's your favorite? The first thing I want to say about a one-pan dinner is it's not only easy, but let's face it, we are more likely to cook if we're not faced with four sinks full of dishes. True that. And so I kind of been thinking that too is just like, how do you get something that's homemade, but you don't end up with an hour of dishes? So that's kind of how I look at the sheet pan dinner. It's like, I almost don't even care what's on a sheet pan as long as it's homemade and I only have dishes for five minutes. That's just like exhilarating to me. That'll keep me from that takeout meal or that quickie fix of some cold cuts or whatever else. My favorite, honestly, is probably a pork chop with some Brussels sprouts. I also love 
roasting chicken thighs, even though we do say to some extent chicken is done to death. Maybe I'm not going to roast on top of the stove because I'm thinking they need oven time. And when I can get the vegetables cooking with them all in one spot, and I don't have the splatter on the stove and it all happens quietly in the oven, that's great for so many reasons. And you can get so much done while you're waiting for it. And like you said, easy cleanup too. I mean, I love like you open the oven and you say dinner's ready. I mean, I put that sheet pan right in the middle of the table on a couple of trivets, and that's the end of that. Family-style dining. Uh, Everybody wants that, gathering around the table to make memories. That takes me to your second book, The Home Cook, Recipes to Know by Heart. I want to read this dedication so that our listeners can hear it. This is for my dad's authentic lemon chicken, Cantonese pork with tofu, and classic Italian tomato sauces mixed with my mom's cheese souffles, oysters Rockefeller, and strawberry trifles. That glorious celebration of culture through food definitely made me become a chef and pen this book. So that's what this show is all about, Alex. We want to talk about and learn about the backstories behind the recipes, how you got where you are. And I think this dedication kind of nails it. You grew up in a cooking household. We either went to the diner and had a hamburger and not a dish was touched or we had dinner at home. There wasn't a big middle ground, if you know what I mean. Right. My mother did a ton of cooking. And over the years, so did my father. And they sort of each had their place like, okay, we're having this and your father's making it. Okay, we're having this and I'm making it. They sort of divvied up everything in their way. And that was really beautiful. I'm an only child. So I was sort of the sole recipient and experiencer of these two people and the repertoire of dishes that turned into how I see them or how I remember them. And that's really beautiful. It is so beautiful. Hey, Alex, walk me through your dad's lemon chicken. I'm fascinated with that. The secret is obviously a little bit of cornstarch because there's nothing like that for breading the exterior of something. And one of the things I love about it is it's really just adjacent to a fried chicken recipe in that it's sort of like all prep. And then all of a sudden, there you are. So you make the sauce and you get the oil nice and hot. My dad would fry it in a wok right on top of the stove. He'd make the sauce and it would be sitting there ready. And the idea behind the dish in an ideal universe is that you get the chicken ready, you make the sauce, you get the oil ready, you get your platter ready, you get your plate with your kitchen towels to drain the chicken once it's cooked. And then it's really bread, drop in the oil, or I should say dredge really, drop in the oil, fry it drain it, salt it, slice, sauce, table. A lot of my father's cooking was prep, 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 and then everything's just ready and hanging, and then you just make it and eat it really quickly. He was very into what I call the a la minute stuff, you know, like okay, yeah, hot to the table, just doused in sauce, and boom, we eat it kind of vibe. And my mother was maybe more of baking and a whole roasted duck, or, you know, a very calculated, technique-driven French dish. My father had a hobby of cooking Chinese food my whole childhood, which is kind of unusual, obviously. A lot of Sichuan and Cantonese dishes, primarily. That was where most of his passion lay. I mean, there's so many places to go regionally with Chinese cooking. My parents were obsessed with language and culture and how that gets shared through certain dishes and ingredients. But he would cook all of these Chinese dinners, and he would write out the menu and write who was coming for dinner 
and write the book and the page number where the recipe was. It was like a catalog of what he did. And I have that whole folder at home, actually. I love that. That's a mate. You have the whole thing in his handwriting. Yeah. 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 And he, you know, like in 1989, I know who came for dinner and what we ate. He even wrote what day of the week it was. And somehow that also just adds something like, wow. So 30 years ago on a Tuesday, I was eating this at the table with my mom and dad. And these are the people that ate it with us. It's really a beautiful thing. And I knew about the folder. It's not fancy. You know, it's not a satin decorated recipe book or anything of the kind. It's just pieces of lined paper in a folder. Um, And my father was a teacher. So it was sort of like you could mistake it for a a stack of exam papers he had to grade. You know, it, it doesn't, it's nothing you can imagine how much I cherish it now. And his handwriting is really beautiful. It's like how you would imagine Shakespeare would write, if you know what I mean. Oh, I do. It looks like he had a big feather quilled pen and just was writing this in Sanskrit, you know, like hieroglyphics. It has that kind of beauty to it. It sounds wonderful. I hope everyone listening will start documenting like that and keep that legacy for your family. I would give anything if I had that for my mom, anything. Alex, I'm so fascinated with the backstory of how your family cooked and your mom was a cookbook editor, I think we should say. So I think I read somewhere you said she was always cooking her way through a manuscript. So those two things between your mom and your dad's passion for cooking, is that how you found your way to a professional cooking career? I mean, I do think that it made any other career possibility not a possibility. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't know when you're growing up what's going to influence you because you're not really looking at it bigger picture. But yeah, I mean, looking back, it almost makes me laugh that I think I was ever going to be anything but. Do you know what I mean? You're listening to Homemade. When we come back, Alex will tell us about the one piece of advice she got that really set her career in motion. We'll be right back after the break. Duncan, and today my guest is Iron Chef, TV personality, restaurateur, and cookbook author Alex Guarnaschelli. So, when you decided that you wanted to become a chef, you went to culinary school, but there was a first step. You worked with Larry Forgione, is that right? Oh, yeah, you've done your homework. Yeah, I worked at a restaurant called An American Place on 32nd Street. I cooked there for a couple years, maybe a year and a half, right out of college. And he just said, you know, you could stay here for a bunch of years and that'd be good, but you should really go to France and learn how to cook where the world is perfect. I I just never forgot he said that. He just said the world is perfect in France. Go there. So I applied to a culinary school, um, like out of a book. I got a book of culinary schools and flipped through it and picked a couple and applied for their work study programs and got accepted to one. And I went to France and I just started, I worked in a cooking school for a year and then I fell into a few little restauranty kind of jobs. And then I met Guy Savoie, who has a three-star Michelin in Paris. I ended up working for him for almost, uh, I don't know, six or seven years. And then I came home and I started working for Danielle Ballou on the East Side. I spent 10 years of my life cooking French food, which is sort of what my mom always did. My mom would watch Julia Child, write everything down, go to the store buy the ingredients and make the dish, you know, like out of a movie. Right. I feel like it's a Julie and Julia movie. She would do that. 
Listen, every single chef, I mean, almost without fail, that I've had on this podcast has said something about how Julia Child influenced their cooking or their mom's cooking or how they came to food was from that. Wouldn't she just be blown away to know that she'd had that kind of lasting influence on all of us? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And now you're doing that for a whole new generation, Alex. I don't know if you realize that, but I'm sure you do to some degree. But through your work on Food Network and your teaching and what you've done with your TV shows and your and your books, you're, you're inspiring a whole new generation. And the fact that you're an Iron Chef helps a lot of young girls see what's possible. I mean, thank you. I think um, that's really the added layer of Julia Child is when... She turns around and empowers so many women because what she did was so extraordinary and unusual. And she was just sort of driven by an idea and she knew what her idea was and it wasn't going to be any other way. I don't know. I guess I'm driven by an idea in a similar fashion. I'm not saying I'm Julia Child. Don't get me wrong. I know what you're saying. Yeah, I definitely knew I wanted to be an Iron Chef. I've always known that I wanted to cook and I've just sort of never let go of those simple ideas. I think that's the one thing we know about you from watching you on Chopped is that you speak very precisely and clearly about what you like and what you don't like. You're strong with your opinion, but you're fair and you have a mind of your own. You're not influenced by what the other judges say. You say somebody says something you don't agree with. You speak up about it. So I want to know a little bit more about Another facet of your personal life, I understand from watching Instagram that you've just gotten engaged as well. Oh, yes. I have a wonderful fiance who's also a chef. And yeah, we've been together for four years and we just got engaged, which is beautiful. Are you planning a wedding? And what would that look like with COVID and everything that we have now? Would you just jump on a plane and go to Italy or France or something? Not planning at all. Not planning yet. No, I hate to disappoint with such a boring answer, but you know my brand is truth. And unfortunately, because of the times, not yet planning at all, kind of waiting. My daughter was supposed to have a big birthday bash this year. Right. But it didn't happen. And I sort of have that on my conscience that I want her to have a big birthday party, hopefully sometime in 2021. And I don't want her to feel like planning for that is coinciding with any other big event. It's just sort of a respect thing. It's like a mob movie, you know, pay homage to the big boss and kiss the ring first kind of thing. Right. Right. Absolutely. I kind of want to make next year about that for her. And once she has had her unique moment, I mean, as an only child, and since I have an only child, I I know how the impact of those special moments can be. And then when I'm through that, I'll start getting samples of lace for the wedding gown, if you know what I mean. Listen, I want to know a little bit more. What do you do on your off day? Like when Alex Cornishelli gets an off day from TV or books or cooking, uh, what do you do for fun? You know, I read a book that has nothing to do with food. I read a magazine that has nothing to do with food. I take a little breather. I feel like people ask me a lot. How do you stay interested in cooking? How do you keep yourself fresh? And One of the ways is by giving myself a little space to breathe. It's important for me to have a day where I just eat an ice cream cone and I stare at the sky. My daughter's 13, so she hangs out with me sometimes, sort of. You know what I mean? So I take the sometimes, sort of, and I make that a priority. Those are my favorite things to do. Be outside. I love flowers. I love trees. They're probably an extension of food and ingredients because a lot of flowers and trees are edible. But I love ingredients. 
I love green markets. I love farmers markets and I love nature. I am not someone who's going to take a tent and go on a nature walk for three months somewhere. That's not me, but I do love natural beauty. And I think spending so many years in a professional kitchen, kind of locked inside cooking chicken, my instinct is to try and get outdoors a little bit. I can understand that. And then you take inspiration from some of that for cooking as well. There's so much hubbub and so much activity in a kitchen. I'm sure sometimes you need that green space just to decompress. Absolutely. And something that's different because food is our profession, but it's also so connected to survival that it's hard to turn that off and go home because you need to cook dinner and think about eating and feeding the people around you always. So when people say, wow, I don't know how to leave my office at the office, I mean, get in line. (laughs) Exactly. Especially when you have to come home and cook for a a daughter or family member. You can't really turn it off, so to speak. You, You have to feed the people, right? I love this quote from you that says, the food we are exposed to during our childhood has a profound effect on our cooking and eating choices when we become adults. That's really the basis for this show. We like to talk about those roots that we put down when we're young and how we translate that to a lifetime of eating and cooking. Um, With the holidays coming up, what are some of your favorite holiday dishes? Like, what do you have to have? Like, it won't be Christmas without blah, blah at your house, or it won't be Thanksgiving without blank at my house. I think for Thanksgiving, I have to make cranberry sauce the way my mother always made it with cinnamon sticks and the orange zest. My mom makes this mashed potato dish with mashed potatoes and whipped cream mixed together with Parmesan cheese. And then it's baked kind of like a mashed potato souffle in the oven. And my father's recipe for stuffing, which has pepperoni and mozzarella. So I have some French influences coming in from my mother and some really sort of Italian American influences coming in from my father. That kind of makes up my Thanksgiving meal. And then for Christmas, it's really become more about Ava. She loves Gordon Ramsay, the chef. So instead of taking any of my recipes, she takes his beef wellington and she makes that. That's kind of a tradition for her. And then we always have fish, some type of seafood, like some shrimp or she likes eel or lobster or squid or octopus. We always have some sort of unusual. We don't get to seven fishes. Right. We get to like two fishes. Still. And it wouldn't be Christmas without those things for me. All right, so I want to make this mashed potato souffle thing for Christmas or for Thanksgiving. so good. Walk me through that real quick, if you don't mind. So you make traditional mashed potatoes with the buttercream and milk and boiled potatoes. And then when that's finished and still warm, you fold in unsweetened whipped cream that's whipped, like as if it were going to go on a dessert, but it doesn't, and grated Parmesan cheese. And then you pour this mixture, which is a little bit liquidy, into a baking dish that's greased. And then you top it with more Parmesan cheese and you put it in a really hot oven and you bake it. And it kind of puffs up. So liquidy, like mashed potatoes. It doesn't become a souffle per se, but it just has a different texture because it's both mashed and then baked. And it gets a little bit sort of fluffy and aerated from the whipped cream. But more importantly, the ultimate hat trick is how so many rich ingredients come together and end up tasting unbelievably light. And I think my mother really loves that about French cooking. I cannot wait to make this. I bet a lot of our listeners are going to make it as well. So the recipe, we can find it if we search for it online. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
Okay, wonderful. All right, so I see a ton of cookies. With cookie season coming up, we're heading into that time right at, you know, after Halloween and before Christmas where people are making cookies like crazy. What are your top one or two must-haves for the holiday season at your house? That's tough to pick. There's a recipe in my new cookbook that is like a traditional sesame cookie. And I know that's kind of weird because you're thinking that's not really very holiday. But the thing about the holidays is you have so many things that have a lot of fruit and a lot of sweetness to them. Even at Thanksgiving, you have cranberry sauce, which feels almost like a dessert. Then you have all those pies. And at Christmas, you know, you're going to have those big desserts. That for me, I feel like chocolate and something that's not super sweet, like a sesame cookie, are the things that get overlooked in the holiday menus. And so when you make those your cookies, it's sort of like, oh, this is not like anything I see at this time of year. And then I always make a batch of either chocolate pavement cookies, so to speak, that are just like chocolate with a tiny bit of egg and flour holding them together, or a traditional chocolate chip. You would be surprised at Thanksgiving or Christmas when you bust out just good old chocolate chip cookies that are well-made, how grateful people are to have something that's like kind of not holiday, grace the table with all the holiday dishes. It almost provides this like little refuge or this little variety. It always works. I love the idea of these sesame cookies. I did see that as one of the recipes in your new book. Tell us about those. How did those come to be? Is that something from your Italian roots? Where does that come from? It actually doesn't. It's one of those recipes that I picked up working in kitchens. It isn't something at all that comes from my childhood or from my parents. And there are some things that just provide that relief too. Like, oh God, does every recipe have to be a story about my mom or dad? And the answer is no. Sometimes there's just something that crosses your path in another way. This is one of those recipes. Well, it looks delicious. And like a lot of people don't like really sweet things. So when you have that person in your family, this seems like a wonderful recipe to pop out for, like you said, for the holidays. You could dunk them in chocolate or top them with jam or sauteed fruit and they become something more. And I kind of like the versatility of something that's almost unadorned, but delicious. And then you can take it to another level if you want. I think that's really smart. And you give people some flexibility to create their own version. Yeah. Or just, Hey, you know what? I do love sugar. So I'm going to actually throw them into a bath of melted white chocolate and we'll see you later. And white chocolate and sesame is so delicious together. And it's unusual. And yet it's not weird. Sesame, white chocolate, these are ingredients and flavors we know. But now my book, Cook With Me, is forcing you to kind of combine them in a good way, hopefully. Yes, and do something that maybe you you wouldn't have thought of, but becomes a new favorite. And that's how all great recipes evolve. Like, I never thought of that. Let me try it. Oh, gosh, that's wonderful. Now I'm going to kind of customize it myself to my own taste or my family's taste. And then that becomes a holiday tradition or a tradition for our home. That's wonderful. So Cook With Me is out now. Yeah. It's a big book, 150 or so recipes, right? Yes. And you go through everything. Like I said earlier, I love this new meat that you talk about, but you also have fish, you have steaks, you have the lettuces and all the vegetables and fruits. You really run the gamut for the home cook to cook alongside of you. And I see a donuts thing that I'm intrigued by. Is that a specialty at your house? Oh, yeah. I mean, but I make another kind of donut at the restaurant, and that's kind of been one of my signature recipes. But this is a simple donut. You literally don't have to proof them or anything. You mix the yeast and you let them kind of sit a few minutes. 
And then you just form, roll, and fry the donuts. And it's kind of like an express recipe. It actually took me a lot of tries to get it right. But I wanted a donut that you could kind of get on the table without waiting for three days. Alex, we were talking a little bit earlier about utilizing squash and cabbage and mushrooms and different things like that as a substitute for meat. I wanted to see if you would walk me through one of those favorite recipes. A lot of these recipes in that chapter came about in a similar way, which is how can I get this really hearty vegetable that takes a long time to cook, especially when you leave it in a big steak form to get on my table and get so delicious. The cabbage you sear stovetop and you braise it largely stovetop. You cut the cabbage down into steaks, like two per head of cabbage. And you can also pop them in the oven with a little bit of liquid so that they can roast and become more tender because they can't always get that way just being cooked on the stove. But it's almost like yeah, you cook it all in one pan and the combination of stovetop and the oven and dinner is ready and you don't have five hours of dishes. And I see you've even got a slow cooker chapter, which a lot of professional restaurant cooks don't want to engage with things like a slow cooker. Can you tell us one of your favorite slow cooker recipes from the cookbook? Yeah. So actually in that chapter, I have a recipe for slow cooker brownies. I just thought that I wanted something really unusual in there. And people are like, wait a minute, why would you slow cook a brownie? But if you're someone who works at home, which a lot of us are now when we weren't before, you can put the brownies in the slow cooker and cook them for a while. And then you kind of forget that you did it. And then you're like, "Ooh, I have this treat. And it's in a really unusual place. I feel like the slow cooker is, oh, people always write me, okay, I cook beans and I made a beef stew in my slow cooker. And that's it. That's right. So I wanted to do something kind of whimsical. You don't need the slow cooker to make brownies, but why not, you know, look at a piece of equipment in a new way and in a more fun way. Like, ooh, something naughty and recreational can come out of the slow cooker, too. It's not just all about necessity. Alex, what else have you got coming up on the horizon? Well, in the next few weeks, I'll be filming season three of my show, Supermarket Stakeout, which has chefs cooking against each other in a parking lot once they negotiate with some shoppers for groceries. That's Tuesdays on Food Network. I'm also on The Kitchen every Saturday morning on Food Network with my co-host, Jeffrey Zakarian, Sonny Anderson, Katie Lee, and Jeff Morrow. And those are really my two big places other than the classic Chopped, which has been on for 12 years, and I feel like it's going to be on for another 12. It's everybody's favorite show. I don't care where I go. People are like, why don't you go on Chopped? I'm like, I had a Chopped experience on Food Network Star, and I'm still not over it. So I'm not going on Chopped. I'm a wandering cook anyway. I don't do well with those immediate, like you must cook this in five minutes things. But I love your supermarket stakeout show. That's so much fun. Tell us the premise of the show and and what it's all about. The premise is that you can win $10,000 if you quote unquote outcook three other chefs. There are three challenges. It's set in a parking lot and you have to run up to the front of the store and as shoppers come out, you negotiate with them. You start with $500 and that has to get you through all three rounds, ideally. And you barter with shoppers to buy their groceries. And then you take them out at your cooking station and you make a dish based on the theme. And whoever makes the best food at the end of the day wins. Not bad for an afternoon, right? 10 grand. Alex, thank you for being here with us today and sharing so much of your life, your food, your recipes, and your food traditions with us here on Homemade. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Alex, 
Alex Guarnaschelli's new book, Cook With Me, 150 Recipes for the Home Cook, is out now. I also really love her previous cookbook, The Home Cook, Recipes to Know by Heart. It's fantastic. You can find her books, lots of recipes, and more at alexguarnaschelli.com. I'm going to spell that for you, Alex, A-L-E-X, Guarnaschelli, G-U-A-R-N-A-S-C-H-E-L-L-I. She's on Instagram and Twitter at Guarnaschelli and on Facebook at Chef Alex Guarnaschelli. Next week on the show, we are featuring a social media star who is so fascinating and completely different from anyone else you've heard here on Homemade. On TikTok, you really have a short amount of time to capture people's attention because the way people use the app is you just constantly scroll very quickly. So unless you're making the world's best chocolate chip cookies, bougie grilled cheese, or something that like is different from what they're used to hearing, you need to use something like that to catch their attention. I'm talking to a teenager whose cooking show on TikTok has 1.3 million followers. Let me tell you, Aton Bernath knows his stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun and packed with ideas you can try at home. You can maybe even get your kids or your grandkids involved. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. And leave us a review if you get a chance so we know how we're doing. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade. Homemade.